want to start this week by, by asking a question, which I think everybody can answer in the affirmative because we've all been there in some sense. Have you ever held, put on, organized, or even been to a party for whatever reason the party was for, and we're stuck cleaning up after everyone? Your response says yes, you've been there. The trash, the cups, the plates, the leftover food, the smashed dessert into the carpet, the spilled drinks, someone's shoes left in the corner that somehow they left the house without their shoes. How often that happens, and I don't know why, but it does. The decorations and streamers are falling down. The balloons are losing their helium falling to the floor. There's wrapping paper literally everywhere. The dog is eating everything that has, has fallen onto the floor or licking the, the trash in the plates or, or whatever else. And yet not a single person has offered to help clean up. And you're left there standing going, what just happened? It really made me think, and I'm, I'm sure maybe some of you are there. We spent a year in this tent. You guys remember that. Seemed like five years ago, didn't it? But we spent a year in this tent on the other side of town. And part of the agreement, which we agreed to, was part of it, was to help them clean up. And if they, you know, that tent was used for the circumstance of a party or a, uh, an event or usually a wedding or whatever it might be. And, and sometimes we said, oh, yeah, no problem. We can put some tables away or chairs. And, and oftentimes we'd come into this place in the morning and go, oh my gosh. Like the rapture happened and everybody just disappeared. Like plates fell, food on the floor. We found all kinds of goodies. So everything that I'd kind of defined before about food on the floor and shoes in the corner and leftover stuff everywhere, you arrive and go, oh my goodness, got to clean up. But it, it also, from time to time, made me think through this idea of what was the enduring value that people walked away from that event with? Do they walk away and, and the next morning still reflecting on the time that they had, the joy that they had, the, the, the dances they were a part of, the food that they ate? I mean, think about it yourself. I mean, sometimes you walk away from a party and you wake up the next day and you just... Move on. What was the point of that celebration? What was the point of it all? Again, it's the, the point is, yes, you know why you're there. You know who you're celebrating or what you're celebrating. But the reality is, what is the enduring value that you're just going to hold on to that is going to benefit your life as you move into your work week or your job or family or whatever else? And I think we know the answer. It is here for a moment and gone. Now, please hear my heart. Those things are fun. They are so much fun to be a part of. I've, I've got a daughter that's going to be turning 16 and is sitting down planning her event. And I'm already looking forward to, to this moment afterwards. But it's going to be fun. It's going to be an absolutely wonderful time for her and the celebration of, of what it's all about. Her sweet 16. But here's the point of what I'm getting at. If you think about the parties, if you think about the events, 
You think about everything that you celebrated. How is it benefiting your life in the Lord? Now, I'm not going to sit here and be a Debbie Downer. Those things are of value. They're fun. We should go through them. We should organize them. We should gather people together. But in the midst of those things that we are allowed to do and can be a part of, it's the enduring value that we can grab onto that we need to think about. Now, I'm going to clear this up as we, as we move into this. So we're going to spend this morning in the first half of chapter 2 and we're going to party like it's 1999. You ready? So let's read verses 1 through 11 together and let's look at Solomon's perspective on this whole lifestyle. So he begins and, and says, I said in my heart, I'm going to pause. I want you to underline that or I want you just to think about that statement. We're going to come back to that in the very end. I said in my heart. He carries on. Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whenever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Yeehaw. Hear how Solomon basically just summarized his life and pursuits. He had everything. He did everything. Nothing was kept. Anything he set his eyes on that he wanted, he went and got because it had all the resources in the world to attain anything from people to possessions to land to partying to you name it. He lived that lifestyle. But he began this whole phrase or this section with, I said in my heart. Now I want you to think about all the inner monologues you have with yourself prior to making a decision. Decision about anything. It could be the decision about sex, drugs, and rock and roll, or it could be decision about work. It could be decision about buying a car. It could be decision about buying clothes or food or where you want to go to eat that never gets answered or, or whatever you want to have in life. And 
you have this inner monologue with yourself. Do I want this? How much do I want to spend on this? Can I, you know, all the justification you make. Do I really need this? No, but do I really want it? Oh, yes. All that inner conversation you have with yourself. You know what I'm talking about? That's what Solomon is saying. I said in my heart. And when you say in your heart and you convince yourself that there isn't anything that you can't do, there isn't anything that you can't have, what typically do you do? You get after it. You try and attain it. And whatever you possibly can get to make yourself happy. Because that's what our heart says to do. Isn't that what society says? Go do what you want to do to make yourself happy. Anything you do for work, anything you do for pleasure, make yourself happy, no matter the cost, no matter what it takes to achieve, make yourself happy. But I want us to understand that prior to making these decisions, prior to going to these events or doing whatever we want to do in life, we need to understand that and remember our sinful nature is ever present waiting to deceive and manipulate you into doing anything apart from God's will for your life. What does it say in Jeremiah 17, verse 9? The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But yet what did Solomon say? I said in my heart, this is what I want to do. You see, when we don't even think about the consequences, we don't think about the results, we don't think about the enduring uh, effects of what it is we're about to do, and we just start here, Scripture says this right here is deceitful. It's sick because of who we are and our nature to sin and, and, and live this meistic life. I'm going to specialize in me. I'm going to believe in me, and it ends there. When we start with our heart, we don't think beyond our nose, do we? Because we want what we want, because we want to be happy. We want to feel good. We want to have this immediate sense of fulfillment, whatever it might be. The moment we seek our own thoughts and wisdom apart from the Lord, we are setting ourselves up for failure. You know, so I want to... I want to talk about this. I'm not going to go into all the details, but I went through this season. This, these first four verses of Solomon talking about testing you with pleasure, to enjoy yourself of laughter and pleasure and cheering your, your body and self with wine and all that. I, I went through that experience. I had my college experience, as they call it. Because I grew up in a home with parents that loved the Lord and established us on the word of God and, and held us accountable to the right things and the wrong things and, and taught us properly. And, and yet I got so self-focused and, and self-indulgent that the moment I got out from underneath my parents' house and rules, I lived those verses. I went off to college and, and found everything that I wanted to do and found myself in lust and sin and smoking and drinking and partying to the degree that I literally woke up in a strange apartment not knowing how I got there, arms wrapped around the toilet, completely covered in vomit, my own, because I couldn't even make it in. I found myself there. 
And come to find out when I finally got cleaned up, I took off my shirt and I, I looked at my shirt. And I was like, what are all these spots? What is all this? And a good friend of mine said, well, we were playing a game to see if we could, from the living room, hawk loogies and see if we could hit you while you were passed out by the toilet. So I want to give you a vision of self-indulgent pleasure apart from the Lord. That's where I was. But having had that foundation because of what my parents taught me, there was only one thing I could do in that moment because I woke up and when I got cleaned up, where I was going to school at the time, they had this huge wooden cross in the corner of their football stadium. So I literally ran to it. And I hopped the fence. I broke the law because I needed Jesus. We weren't supposed to be in the stadium at night, especially that late at night. But I said, forget it. I don't care. Could have gone to the chapel that was open 24 hours on campus, but I didn't do that. I just thought the cross, the cross, the cross. And I went to that cross and I got down on my knees and I just remember crying, weeping. Because God allowed me to see that vision of what I allowed myself to do apart from him. And I just remember hearing the, the, the words, is that where you want to be? Of course, in a father-type tone of love and grace and compassion, is that where you want to be? And I said, no, of course not. That was, that was it. That's, that was my pursuit. That's where I was headed. And God only knows where that would have led had I decided I didn't really want to follow the Lord, but we, here's what we need to do. We hear statements like that of, you know, these, these college experiences and, and living your life and, and just, it's okay to, to do this and that so you can have the experiences of life, but we, we need to stop justifying life because it's a college experience. It has nothing to do with college. Had I not gone to college, I still would have done that because it was sin, that attracted me to that lifestyle. It had nothing to do with college. I don't blame school. I blame myself and my lack of self-control and being blind to the Lord and not keeping my eyes on Him because I listened to my parents, but I didn't want to live life without at least trying these things. It is a horrible justification because of what it could have ended up with. There's plenty of other stories, but for lack of time, I'll save those for another time. <clears throat> and maybe you've, you've had your own. You've experienced your own. You've justified your own joy. You've justified your own pleasures and experiences because it's what you wanted to do. I can't go through life without having tried it at least once. We've all been there. You've had that inner monologue you've said in your heart it's it's okay somebody once said pleasure seeking usually becomes a selfish endeavor and selfishness destroys true joy see we seek to do things that make us happy and that happiness lasts for that long of time because it eliminates true joy depth of joy that we have in jesus christ the relentless pursuit of pleasure and happiness is an endless pit. 
<coughs> Pardon me. Look at verse 10. Can we read that again? Solomon said, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. See, again, because he had that inner monologue and justified in his heart that these things were okay. It's what I want to do. He experimented with it all in those short verses that we just read. Sex, partying, drinking, materialism, money and riches, even worshiping idols of other gods. Now, you didn't really hear that in those first 11 verses, but let me, let me bring a little context to his life. If we, you don't have to turn there, but in 1 Kings chapter 11, we read a little bit more about Solomon's pursuit of this life apart from Christ. In 1 Kings 11, we read, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old and his wives, uh, excuse me, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father, David. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. See, David lived his life. David had his experiences. David set his eyes on this young lady who was bathing out on the rooftop and said, I'm going to do whatever I can to take her as mine, even killing her husband so he could have her. But yet David's heart was geared towards the Lord because he would come to and say, this is not right. Father, forgive me. And he repented of those sins. Solomon, as far as we know, did not do so much of that. So the more and more we involve ourselves in the hedonistic pleasures of life, hedonism, what does that mean? It's the indulgent, unrestrained, pleasure-seeking lifestyle. Now, some of you sitting here right now may go, well, I'm never going to go to that degree. <coughs> That's a little intense. That's the far extreme. No, of course not. Because you don't immediately jump into the deep end of the pool. Neither did I. <coughs> my first effort did not find myself with my arms wrapped around the toilet. It started with just a, a small drink. One cigarette here and there. Is easily justify when you when you don't go to the extreme, right? But then what does that do? It only causes you to long for more and more and more and more. The more this world has to offer, no matter the source of its pleasure, you're going to find yourself in that downward spiral of addictive behavior, not realizing it until you're lying on the floor, paralyzed and passed out with your arms around the toilet, covered in vomit and spit from friends. And you wake up and go, how in the world did I get to this place? Anything, anything could become addictive. That once tasted and enjoyed, it's 
only going to leave that wider gap to fill. Look, I, I know I'm, I'm, in a sense, preaching to the choir because we've all had this or that or this thing or that thing. <clears throat> I want you to consider the, the story of the prodigal son that you may be familiar with. Luke chapter 15. Very quickly it says, And the younger of them, these two sons have, that belonged to this father, the younger of them said, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Essentially, give me my inheritance. Do we understand what he's saying to his father in that moment? I don't want you anymore. I don't want your authority anymore. I don't need your accountability anymore. You're as good as dead to me. So when you're dead, I get my inheritance. So I'm just considering you dead. Give me now what is due to me, and I'm just going to go and live my life. So the father divided his property between them, and not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into the far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. You see where self-seeking meism leads to? Such a destructive behavior that all you have left is the desire to eat pig food? When you at one time had a loving father who cared for you, loves you, provided for you, and sometimes we just say, well, that's your life. Those are your rules. I don't want to live by them anymore. Because we're having this inner monologue with our heart that says, go and do what you want to do. Come on. Eat the fruit, Eve. Your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God. You can have everything that you want. But not for a moment do we need to believe or should we believe that this can't happen to those of us who belong to the house of the Lord? Isn't that what we gain from the parable of the prodigal son? He lived in his father's house. He was under his father's rules. Being provided for by his father and everything that he could possibly need and want and desire. And yet, he said, I don't need that anymore. So he walked away from the church wanted to go live his life. And so he did. So we, we can't stop for a second. Well, I go to church, I read my Bible, I do these things here and there, and I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm not going to find myself there. I think Proverbs says something about being careful that you take heed lest you fall. We are going to be susceptible at any given moment to the failures of Solomon and this prodigal son, which Solomon himself kind of lived that life, didn't he? He lived that life of that, that prodigal that said, I saw what my father did. I saw David. I, I lived his life. I lived under him and I had his rules, had everything, but yet I wanted to do my own thing. We're all susceptible to these failures. In fact, Jesus himself would speak to this in Luke chapter 8. 
It was something that, that Curtis mentioned last week, which I, I love the fact that the Spirit put that on his heart because it, it plays uh, a role, such a role right now in what we're talking about. So you get to hear it again, the little confirmation of, of God's Word. In Luke 8, chapter 13 and 14, Jesus is saying, And the ones that fell on the rock are those when they hear the Word, they receive it with all joy. But these have no root. They believe for a little while and in time of testing, and when that testing comes, they have this inner monologue with themselves and their heart and they fall away. And it says, as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and the riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. See, Jesus is saying we're, we're, we're placed in this world. And if we don't allow ourselves to settle deep into God's word and listen to the advice of God's word and be obedient to God's word and forsake the, the need to have experience, to try this, to try that, and we're going to be choked by those thorns of sin. Because the pleasures and the sin and the, and the things of this world is just going to distract us and discourage us and dissuade us from doing anything that aligns with, with God's word. How many times in Jesus' teachings did he end his parables or end his teachings with, for those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Maybe in, in, in common language, that would be, take my advice. I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> See, that's sometimes advice doesn't mean anything anymore. No, that was, that was your life. That's what you experienced. It's a new day. It's a new age. It's a new era. You don't know what I'm going through nowadays. You lived 30 years ago and experienced all that. It's different today. You don't understand my life. We don't take advice anymore. Because what did we read two weeks ago? There is nothing new under the sun. And if we would just listen. One of the biggest battles we face is to get caught up. <coughs> excuse me. To get caught up in the desire for experimentation and, and gratification, all for the knowledge of experience and forsake the wisdom of those trying to steer us away from moral or material failure. This is everything Solomon lived his life for and that we get to read about now and hope that we're, we're listening. So the second half of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, he moves from the party lifestyle and, and pleasure-seeking to back to his work, back to his toil, his labor, his career. So let's pick up in verse 12. He says, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. And there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Ah, what does he say? Then I said in my heart, 
What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise and of the, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to a man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart for which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Well, if you hear what Solomon is saying, that I work and I work and I work and God has blessed me with all this wisdom and I work and I strive and I, I gather all this stuff and I do these great things and, and yet I'm just going to die and leave it to somebody who may just take it for granted. What's the point? But yet what did he say in the beginning? Wisdom is better than folly. Light is better than darkness. <clears throat> so simply put, the more you do or try to accomplish apart from Obedience to the Lord will never equate to lasting fulfillment. And Solomon reflected on this life of vanity, all this toil, all this work, only to leave it in the hands of people who took it for granted, didn't do anything with it, because they didn't, they didn't care about the predecessor. He says it's all for naught. Jesus speak to this? Oh, yes, he does. We look at Luke chapter 12. Jesus follows up Solomon's vain pursuits with another parable. He says in Luke 12, verse 15, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It's almost as if he's talking to Solomon directly. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plenty, plenty, plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, ah, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool. <laughs> This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. See, this man had accumulated so much, worked so hard, spent his life accumulating all these goods so he could get to the point of retirement and just say, I'm just going to, I've got a storehouse of goods that I can rely on and I can just be happy and relax and kick up my feet and enjoy life little does he know that his life was going to come to an end that night that's 
when Jesus says, your soul is required of you, meaning your life is over. So what was the point of all that storage and building larger barns just to hold more goods? Who's it going to go to? See, it's not about working so hard and, and gathering up so much to retire and enjoy life, and, and that's it. If we, if we come back to Solomon's story, he had done, done the same thing. Created vineyards and storehouses and had all the gold and thousand women that he enjoyed and, and everything that you could think of to have. And, and what was it all for? Because what happened in the end, his son would take over. His son's name was Reho, Reho, starts with an R. Rehoboam. Rehoboam. You read it. You do better. We're going to call him Reho. Took over after his father Solomon. And his son squandered everything. Everything that Solomon had talked about building up. The vineyards and the pools and the riches and the wealth and the kingdom. Destroyed it all. Because of arrogance. The kingdom was divided in half. And Solomon's words rang true. It was all for naught. It was all vanity. Because it wasn't given to the Lord. The Lord was not in his heart. The Lord was not in his mind. He had no purpose for the stuff except to accumulate the stuff. Maybe it's important when Jesus says in Matthew 6, you cannot love God and money. You can't do both. And he would say, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we say this all the time, is it wrong to have stuff? No. Is it wrong to have money and lots of it? No. But why are you accumulating that money? What is the purpose of the stuff in the end? If God is going to bless you with things and stuff and money and, and whatever else, then count it a gift from the Lord. James 1.17 says, For every good and perfect gift comes down from our Father in, in heaven. Everything we have is from the Lord. So therefore, everything we do with what we have from the Lord needs to be used for the Lord in some respect. We need to have our mind and our heart on the Lord with whatever it is that we do have. And if we find ourselves saying to our heart, I wish I had all that. I wish I had those problems. Then that's where we need to pause and say, Lord, what do you want me to do with what you have given me? So this is the realization. Let's bring this to a close. We'll read this together. It'll be up on the screen. Verses 24 through 26. Solomon, the light bulb comes on. And in verse 24, he says, There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat? For who can have enjoyment? You hear the realization? You see the light come on? It's a different perspective. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. 
But to the sinner, he has given the busyness of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. See, he realized then what we need to realize now. We need to take the steps to help refocus our attention on where it needs to be. See, as with Solomon, his failure in the pursuit of a me-centric life started with this term, I have said in my heart. So we're going to come back to that. And we're going to talk at least through four steps that we can take to refocus our heart and our attention on the Lord in whatever it is that we are pursuing or thinking we need to pursue in life. So let's search our heart. And rather than pursue a meistic way of life, let's pursue a theistic way of life, a God-centered perspective. Step number one. We need to repent of the things that we've pursued apart from the Lord. We need to repent of the things that we've done that were not pleasing to the Lord and the life he has given to you. See, Solomon didn't have the heart of his father, David. So let's read David's words when he came to this realization. Psalm chapter 51, verses 15 through 17. David would would cry out to the Lord, unseal my lips. O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. That's where we need to be when we mess up, when we're pursuing everything apart from the Lord setting our eyes on something that is not going to please God and is not going to benefit our life, is going to have no enduring value, but we just think we need to wrap our hands around it. That's where we stop and go, Lord, I need to come back to you. I need to focus my attention on you. Forgive me, Lord, for, for trying to grab on to something that is here today and gone tomorrow. Step one is simply repent. Give that to the Lord. Be okay with a broken spirit before God. And step number two, then ask the Lord to instill in you a proper perspective, a proper heart of perspective towards the things of this world. There's nothing wrong with that. Ask him for what you need. Isn't that the Lord's prayer? Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day. Ask for what you need. Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. See, I know I've got a deceitful heart, a sick heart. Fix it. (laughs) Remove it. I need more of you, so I don't want to be driven by my deceit and by my sickness. As David would say in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You see, it all comes back to our heart. If the heart is deceitful and sick, no one can understand it, then we better go to the one who created it. To say, give me a new heart. Create something new in me. I have a different vision and perspective of this world. Step one, repent. Step two, ask for what you need. And step three, 
Believe in and act on what God promises you. Call it holy advice. Don't just live for the experiences. Listen to what God has promised you. And in one respect, what has he promised you? We go to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36. God speaking, he says, <coughs> I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey all my rules. See, he promises us the right heart. He promises us his spirit. If we would just believe in and act on the fact that we live with that in us, his spirit in us, that new heart in us. Listen to his advice. Listen and believe on his promises. Repent, ask, believe in, and step forward. As you now then move forward and walk in him, keeping your focus and attention on him. Keep yourself in a posture of following him, not the ways of this world. See, we try and get out in front of God. And the whole world is presented to us because that's all that we have in our vision. But if we would humble ourselves and follow him, our eyes can only see him. But you better walk that close that you see nothing else but him. See, Proverbs chapter 4, verses 23 through 27 says this. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Vigilance, excuse me. Keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. Put away your crooked speech. And put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet. You hear that? Think about what you're doing. <laughs> Think about the steps you're taking and what direction you're going in. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Lock step. Stride for stride with Jesus Christ before you, keeping your eyes on him. Now I know you take those four steps and all is going to be honky-dory picture perfect, right? No, because we're old enough and we're wise enough, whether we're 13 or whether we're 70-something. I don't want to throw anybody under the bus this morning. No matter your age or wisdom that you have, we understand we may trip, we may fall, we may veer our attention other ways, but we understand that God's grace is ever flowing, overflowing. Psalm 73 says, My flesh and my heart may fail. Maybe it says, We, we will fail. Yes, we may fail. We will fail. We're going to mess up. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So we live in that grace. We accept that grace when we mess up. 
and we go right back to where we need to be. We don't take advantage of it to live how we want. Oh, God will forgive me. His grace is ever flowing. I messed up. Shame on me and go right back to what we did before. No, don't take advantage of it, but accept that grace. Live in it. Get up. Press on and have joy in the life he's given you. John 10, 10. Memorize it. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Enjoy life. You're supposed to enjoy life. You're supposed to find happiness when the perspective is Jesus and what he wants for you. Say amen.